Well, thanks, Jeff. So the I am very aware of the first time I heard your name, which was I got interested in objectivism when I was 15. And it was very shortly after that Sense of Life, the documentary about Ayn Rand hit, well, not not a ton of theaters, but one in my backyard in DC. And I remember taking the, uh, the, uh, what is it? What is it? The Metro, which is not really a train, but it made me think of a train, uh, as I was going to, you know, see this and you can imagine like I'm in that magical period of a teenager discovering Ayn Rand and I'm going to go to a theater and see, uh, this movie about her life. And of course you were a part of that. But then the first time we met was my first day at ARI. You're actually the second person I met and you gave me a tour of the archives. And do you remember what you showed me? You said, what do you want to see? I said, I don't even know what's here. And you said, all right, well, what are you interested in philosophy? And I, I, or I told you and you said, okay, let me show you something. And you pulled out the first two handwritten manuscript pages of Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. So both of those are two like moments that are just etched into my mind that you were a part of. And so I'm, uh, it, it gave wow. blossom to a long and very fun uh, relationship. So I'm very excited to talk Fantastic. to you now. Fantastic. I'm taking my glasses off in case I start to have a reflection. Um, I remember that. Uh, those encounters. Well, I don't remember you actually coming to the theater in DC, although I think I was in DC at the time because we were doing a round of appearances at film festivals. So as I recall that, that uh, at least one iteration of the sh screening of Ayn Rand and Sense of Life took place at a DC festival. Um, and then of course it, it had a general release, you know, and it rotated around the country. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I do actually remember now that you think of it or speak of it, that first um, visit of yours to the archives, I do remember, you know, asking you, I mean, it's typical that I would say, what are you interested in? Because that's sort of where it all begins. What are you interested in? And uh, it was, you know, within a few minutes, I think we pulled that and maybe a few other things that, uh, you know, got the ball rolling. I mean, there's just nothing like, cause I mean, you have to imagine. So I think it was 23 about to turn 24, you know, I had spent nearly 10 years and a lot of those 10 years were spent just rereading ITOE over mm. and over and over again. And then to see like, this isn't just some, you know, something that fell from the sky, but something somebody set down one day and just jotted out by hand <laughs> With, with, I think, like basically zero corrections. Well, uh, minimal corrections. Not for sure. Particularly for those first uh, two pages. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was one of those moments where, one of the few moments I found myself literally speechless. Wow. So that is uh, a rare thing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so we'll, we'll talk more, I think, about the work that you've done at the. Hold on one second. Landon, what did we talk about? <laughs> uh, the, the sounds of life. Yeah, very much so. So we'll talk more uh, about 
I think how you ended up at the Ayn Rand Institute archives and all that. But um, right. one of the reasons I'm most excited to talk about you, talk with you is that we both share let's call it like a, a plethora of interests, including creative interests. Mm -hmm. And so maybe before we get to some of those specifically, if you could just tell me, I don't even know that much about your background prior to you kind of arriving in Hollywood and launching out into the world. So where did you grow up? I grew up, uh, I was born in, uh, in Berkeley, uh, California. Okay. I grew up in the Bay Area. I grew up uh, in an island on an island in San Francisco Bay called Alameda, which is a, a little port city. And that um, uh, is directly across the, the bay from San Francisco. So I uh, lived about a block and a half or so away from uh, these very interesting salt marshes that led into a beach that went directly into the uh, down, you know, shot you, your eyesight directly into downtown San Francisco. And you had water on one side, houses on the other in this beach and this really beautiful city looming in the distance. And that uh, I was, eventually I, I lived in Berkeley. I went to school there. I went to university there. And then I lived in San Francisco. So the Bay Area was a big part of my, my upbringing. And my, um, you know, as far as you know, other details. My family is from all over the world and all over the country. So everyone, all of my grandparents as young men and women ended up in the Bay Area for various reasons. They were all pulled to this location um, from the Midwest, uh, from Utah, from Denmark, from Mexico. And it was just this really interesting uh, very cosmopolitan environment and this very small port city that I grew up in, which was uh, from the get-go, uh, extremely interesting, diverse, uh, always filled with interesting people and proximate to interesting things. So that's my well, What were some of your early interests? Well, um, I mean, I, I basically have had a lifelong um, love affair with music, text, and visuals. So music, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the music that I first listened to was classic, was, you know, so-called classical music, but I was uh, really captivated by the music of Tchaikovsky. I was a big ballet fan, even as a young kid, the, uh, his ballet music. Um, I was very interested in reading and anything that had to do with storytelling and the evocative use of language. And I was a talker myself. And uh, so I think that was a, a kind of a natural you know, place for me to be. And then to, to combine all this together, I was um, from a very early age, I was exposed to and took up visual art. So I was always drawing and painting and constructing and, and uh, depicting in some way or another the things that I was thinking about or the music I was listening to and, and eventually started composing. So it was, a, it was a combination of those things. And it was from a very early age. I, I started these interests before I, uh, and that was actually pursuing them in some tangible way before I was in school. So that was in the preschool period. And my parents were very encouraging of that. Yeah, I mean, I remember 
when I was six, like the, I think the definitive moment where I started to self-identify as a writer mm-hmm. was I was writing poetry as I'm sure, you know, all kinds of kids do. And, and my dad we- said, well, yeah, my dad said, uh, this is really good. I know a guy in publishing that maybe, maybe we can get these published. Mm-hmm. And I was just waiting for that day. And that it took a lot longer, uh, to come but it, it, just to give you how megalomaniacal i was at that age i then took these poems and buried them in the woods next to our house for future archaeologists to find and go oh my gosh the lost that's works really? of don Watkins. well that's great well i haven't uh, i haven't read these poems when are you when are you publishing them or when are you digging them up my, yeah uh no i that's the one tragedy is that i you as the archivist who is hmm recognizes the value of saving everything. I saved nothing. My parents saved nothing. They're, they're, the only evidence of my writing at a young age would have been what I published in my high school paper. Oh, really? Well, that's yeah. good. That's a good start. It's something. I, uh, um, you know, I grew up, you know, musically speaking, I uh, entered into the scene. I was a, uh, I took up instrumental music when I was a kid and I played uh, I, I taught myself how to play the piano, and then I um, studied uh, clarinet beginning in fourth grade. We had a, an incredibly rich music depart- and arts department in the school system that I went to all the way. F- you could, you know, event by the time you were in sixth or seventh grade, you could be an orchestra and, and, and have a choice of going into the orchestra or into concert band and all sorts of other spinoffs from that, jazz band, chamber music, et cetera. So it was a really dynamic environment. But at that time, um, and this gets to the art, the saving thing, um, you know, music and, you know, if you were a composer and you were writing music, music was just like a, a decade or three beyond the technological level of the Gutenberg printing press. Everything was done by hand, you know, at that time. And so, um, and it was an arduous process to, you know, get your musical ideas for me at that that point down on paper. So when I inscribed something and I was going on to the next draft and I wanted to reuse something that I had previously inscribed, I would get a, a pair of scissors out and clip and, and, and cut it out and and slap it on the page and glue it and so forth. And that's how I pieced together the compositions. So oh, we I still do up, cut and paste today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I just, I thought, <laughs> This is, you know, I, I'm not going to give up all of that stuff. Now, I have to, uh, speaking of, of heirs of or visions of your future in terms of, you know, you mentioned burying your poetry very carefully and, and properly so in a safe, safe place. I, I had a, a similar encounter with a teacher in second grade. Second grade in, in Alameda was a year before you actually started a formal music study. So I knew I was going to start that in third grade. And, but I went to my second grade teacher and I said, would you, would you give me music lessons? Because I'm interested in, in, in getting, a, getting a jump on this. And she agreed. So I, I got a tonette, which is like a little, um, kind of a, uh, it's very popular in Europe, but they're, it's sort of like a recorder, but it really, it's more like a whistle with, with, you know, uh, fingers that enables you to make, you know, create pitches. So anyway, this was the instrument that I got. My dad got it from the Berkeley House of Music, no less. And um, I, I start. I went into my teacher's uh, 
the classroom after school one day and, and I said, I'm ready, ready to start. And, and she hands me this piece of paper and says, well, you have, to, well, Jeff, you have to learn how to read music first. And I was, I paused and I looked at her and I looked at this thing and I says, Miss Lindy, why should I have to learn how to read music? I never expect to play any other music than my own. <laughs> I love that. And she said, okay. I mean, she was very understanding and very, um, she was with me, but I remember eventually being convinced I should learn the Western notation system. And um, I think the first uh, uh, tune I ever learned was a, a spiritual called Old Black Joe. So that was my first um, in the key of C, I think. Music is an interesting field in that, I mean, almost exclusively like you learn by playing other people's stuff and then even some professionals only play other people's stuff. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you, if you contrast that with something like writing, like it would be weird to sit down. I actually have a screenwriting teacher who recommends this as an exercise, but like in general, it's weird to sit down and go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to rewrite Atlas shrugged or something. Mm -hmm. It's, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, but and yet one of the things I found is I first learned guitar as a teenager and I had exactly that mentality and what it did, I'm only going to play my own stuff is it ended up stifling my creativity because I never expanded my skill set wide enough to be able to express the range of ideas that kind of bubbled around in my mind. And if I had just been more diligent about like, Hey, you know, learn, gain the powers of playing the instrument and understanding the instrument, and then you'll be able to do way more. I would have been uh, quite better served. Well, I, I mean, you're also a listening, you know, and part of the experience of, of uh, your beginning is just having a fund of experience, a fund of listening that you do. And uh, that's going to be a lifelong thing, whether you're a, a performer or a composer, or you know, uh, a person attuned to just experiencing it without having you know picking up an instrument or, or, or inscribing a single note. So you know, there's always that in the background, and um, I, I think uh, that's a, a a watershed of experience that most people have is that avid, intense listening and. And of course, the, the more varied the listening, the better, the more um, you get a chance to see what's out there and what's possible. Well, th that leads right into what I want to ask you next, which is how did you go about kind of developing your, if you want to put it, creative skill set or creative ability? I mean, I think the foundation, you know, I, I know, for instance, I know a lot of people in film and one of the things you see is A, they consume a lot of it and the diversity of it. And, but B, they talk about it in different, and I don't even mean necessarily even professionals, but even when you meet people as a teenager, they're talking about the movies they see in a different way, right? Like they're mm -hmm. trying to understand the characters, put things together, figure out why things were done a certain way. They're, they're much more curious about it. And so when they come and sit down and try to create, they have a wealth of kind of firsthand judgments about what good, 
what a good movie is and mm-hmm. you know what a what a good visual style is and they still haven't yet developed their own but they have a lot a lot stronger sense than somebody who i like i didn't watch movies like that i was much more like literally this is I would, my mom and my brother and i would go to the movies we'd walk out and this would be the conversation afterwards what'd you think yeah it's pretty good and that would that would be that and so i had a very a very impoverished vocabulary for those things what what were the kinds of things you were doing um in these areas that were really appealing to you and how much of it was just kind of like jumping in and having fun versus really trying to build up your abilities well um i remember from the get-go i never uh, wanted for something to say. I always had something to say, even according to my parents before I learned proper English, because I think <laughs> in an earlier period when I had my own language that I was speaking for about a, you know, a half a year or so, and it didn't really, uh, you know, translate into, uh, you know, my first language, which is English. And the, I think that In a way, it's unpack. You know, the experience of starting out is just the experience of being totally receptive to what is out there, and that's in all your sense modalities. So it was an instant plug-in. I mean, that's the starting place. It's it's looking at stuff and looking here rather than there, listening to that rather than this. Uh, looking up rather than down and being aware that there's a tremendous um, uh, power and uh, uh, in two, in two respects. One is just the pure sensory experience of your senses and taking things in. And then there's the added element of being able to direct your senses or direct your experience or start to refine and shape it by going after certain things that you find interesting. So for me, you know, there was plenty of stuff to see. There were, the, the world was intensely interesting. And as soon as I could ask formal, formulate questions about it, I, I asked my parents about it, I asked my friends about it, I asked the, you know, the people in the neighborhood about it. And I, I didn't find that um, hard to do. It was a natural thing. and. Uh, it was just a gradual building of experience and just being open to taking things in and then retaining a memory of that. Because eventually I started coming up with drawings. I came up with music. I came up with little stories. I, I started doing in my own little workshop the kind of uh, work that would eventually lead to a declaration of, oh, I'm going to be a you know, writer. I'm going to be a composer, which is you know, where, I, where my head was when I was 10 years you know, into the process, by the time I was 16, I think I made the formal declaration. But you know, 10 years before that, I was you know, just amassing a, 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 a fund of experience. And then maybe around five or six, I began to um, do something with that concretely that ended up on the page or ended up outside of me. And that was really the, 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 the first steps in a long process of, of gaining some mastery. Now I'll tell you, there's a, I'll tell you something about 
uh, that process. I was aware that it was a process some years into this. And I remember I had a paper, uh, paper route. I delivered the Alameda Times Star. That was my first uh, a job, uh, aside from cutting the lawn for my dad. But this is, a, or I'd go around the, the neighborhood in the morning delivering papers. We actually had paper back then and I delivered them. Um, uh, and by the way, that was an interesting experience for me to be able to fold my papers in the morning, like when they came and know that I was like uh, anticipating the news for, an, for a hundred people that were in my neighborhood. So I was very mm. on top of it. And I realized that this, you know, I was delivering important stuff so I remember there was this one little somewhat narrow kind of alley-like street that was in, had an L shape to it. And I would get to it. And for some reason, it reminded me of a set of a opera or an operetta or something like that. And I imagined the people coming out on, their, on the porch and taking their paper and picking it up and opening it up and starting to sing. And there was all this music in my head. And I'm thinking, and I was delivering the papers, and you know, the you know it was toward the end of the the, the delivery period of the day, and I was going to start the next part of my day. But I was thinking, oh my God, I've got to capture all this. I've got to get this out of my head. And I at that very that, that very time, I said, God, I wish there was like a patch cord. I, know, I didn't use the word patch cord, but I I said, I wish there was a plug I could stick in my brain and just get all this stuff out. Mm -hmm. Because then I could really do something with this. Now, it took another uh, eight years of backbreaking kid labor to get it out of my head, to take this stuff and externalize it and to capture enough of it so I could um, uh, develop it. And, it, you know, I had to, in effect, learn how to take music uh, or creative dictation out of my subconscious. I had to get it out. I had to get it out in a tangible enough form that would remind me of the moment that I experienced and then put me in the mindset of, of you know, adding further to this at a prescribed time when I could sit down and deal with it. But there were many times when I was, you know, in my younger years when I would start a project flooded with this excitement and, and, and fury that was in my head. And then I'd, I'd get it to sit down at the piano, pick up the, the pencil and I would write one measure and it would take me a half an hour and I would lose everything. And I would just be, I would be so perplexed. I said, how am I ever going to write fast enough? I'm, I'm doing it so slowly. But it, over time, um, I found a way to take what I had inside and pull it out in pieces that summarized the experience or, or in, in effect, at a later point, would evoke it for me. So I could pick it up and I could move ahead with it. And that was true both uh, and that was a true across the board. That was true in, in music, uh, lit, in writing, and in the visual arts. In terms of as you were developing these kind of different skill sets, were you, were you primarily like, you know, self-learn through books, relying on mentors, a mm. whole conglomeration of things? Like, well, I, I'm very curious where how creative people like actually develop their ability to kind of take what's in here and execute it in some, 
in some form, because Mm -hmm. like you said, you very eloquently explained, there is that feeling of you have something in here and it might not even be fully formed, but externalizing it is a, like, that's like, that's really, my cat is uh, crossing my path. (laughs) Um, That's how I feel about writing about Uh when I feel like I really came in my own as a professional. It's not some external thing. Like, Oh, I got, paid to write. It was mm-hmm. when I felt control over the ability to take what was in here and know that I could get it in the form that I want it over mm-hmm. time. Well, I think uh, for me, I happily was ex- uh, exposed to very early on artists that were working. There was a friend of my mother's um, that lived in San Francisco. And, and this uh, is a memory that goes back to you know kindergarten if not earlier, we would periodically go over to the city um, and visit my mother's friend. She had an apartment on Russian Hill. Um, So it was a huge adventure to get in the car, to get on the freeway, to go over the, the Bay Bridge, to see this incredible panoramic uh, setting of, of the city and the waterfront. And then at the time there was a freeway along the Embarcadero and we'd end up at, in North Beach at the bottom of Broadway. And, and of course, at, at, at that point you were like going into like the swinging sixties and there were go-go dancers on this side and there were topless joints on that side. And there was this, you know, we're going Chinatown's there, little Italy is there or, uh, you know, the equivalent of North Beach, which is the Italian section. And then there was Russian Hill, and then she was on top of it. And, and we'd go there, and, we'd, um, and she had a small apartment, and her dining room was her studio. And so we would, my parents would eat there, and she would set up a place for my sister and I out in the uh, living room at, on a, this Japanese table, and we would sit on, and, and, and dine out there. And then at the end of each um, uh, visit, or at the end of the dinner, my sister and I would put on a play because my, my Crucy, the, the artist, friend of my mother, had these French doors that slid and partitioned off the her studio from the living room. And so we would put on, well, we would put on a play. It was probably all of 15 seconds long and, <laughs> and 10 seconds of that was opening and opening the door, you know, but still we did that. And I think it was the combination of eventually um, because she was very musical, as was my mother, um, and being exposed to music and being exposed to Crucy's painting, and then this opportunity to, and, uh, to, port- to depict a little drama in the setting, all uh, you know, uh, spun into a a tangible, actionable, you know, ongoing experience. And in fact, uh, the, the first uh, big show I ever opened, uh, I, had a, I did a, a production of, uh, of the stage show that I ever, I've done many before, but I mean, I had an off-Broadway show in New York and um, Crucy wasn't able to come to see it, but her husband did. And so he flew in for one of the performances. And so we, we were kind of remarking on, on how this uh, development, you know, occurred from their apartment on Russian Hill be- with these French doors that would slide back and forth to this enormous theater that, you know, I was here and here was my show, music and 
that I composed and, and a script that I adapted. So those are the kinds of things that um, are tastes as a youth. And the taste, the taste is sometimes experienced as a wink, as a moment. And what's so important is being empowered to seek more and not being uh, uh, restrained and being, and not necessarily being nijnically pushed ahead, but just being given a chance to take another step. Because, uh, I mean, none of my people, none of my family came from artistic background, particularly. It was all through friends of my family or through my friends. And, but there was an atmosphere that, where you could take a step and another step and you can accumulate things over time. And eventually a year or two or 10 years later or three decades later, you're in New York and you know, the New Yorker is coming to in, you know, review your show and the New York Times has already reviewed it. And um, it, but it started like way back when you were a kid and just wanted to taste something and then go back to it and taste it again. I mean, I, it sounds like it was very helpful in knowing people who actually were artists, not no. necessarily even that they're kind of like, Hey, or Jeff, let me give you my top 10 tips, but just, this is a real thing. People like me can be, it, it creates a certain reality to it. Whereas yeah. to me, it was always very abstract. Like I never knew anybody who was in the arts in any way, aside from like, you know, in the, the, the um, you know, theater group at in high school or something. And I think that I think I would have been more inclined, particularly if I had known like somebody who was a writer, if I just like known them, it would have felt much more like, okay, mm -hmm. that's a path I can pursue. And so the question I wanted to ask you is what do you think made the difference between like, I'm sure you knew a lot of people in high school, maybe college who had kind of similar interests as you did, but mm -hmm. they kind of went off into a more standard path and like you didn't, right? You really made that part of your life in an ongoing way. What do you think made you different in that sense? I couldn't live without it. I simply, from the earliest I can think uh, to uh, think back, um, and I went to a, a school where I actually started, I, I, I had a, a schoolmate in kindergarten I went to Berkeley with, you know, so it was a continuous, I had a chance to see a lot of my peers going, you know, here and do develop different things and, and move on. But I, I think it was just being aware that it was something that was important to me that I couldn't uh, deny. And I'll give you a very concrete experience that I had. And this was actually, since we're kind of rehearsing this, you know, early development thing, it happened in kindergarten. And, you know, kindergartens were half days when I was growing up. And I don't know if that's still the case, but I remember going in already versed in drawing and already capable of doing that. And there were moments, you know, periods when the class would be, Turn, would turn them their the attention over to drawing materials and little tables and butcher paper or manila paper and crayons and so forth and 
I was drawing what I was drawing and the, the things that I had been drawing prior to entering school and my male school chums were looking at what I was drawing. They were kind of going oh, like this and they were like drawing other things. They were drawing, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I was drawing seascapes or boats. I, I, my, I idolized my grandfather who was a sea captain. And so that was some, that was a theme throughout the things that I, but they were building, you know, my, my peers, they were, they were drawing warplanes and exploding bombs and that sort of thing. And, and they said, well, you should draw this, you know, or, or some equivalent of that. And I remember going away from that experience and coming back with a drawing of a bunch of bombs going off in a battlefield. And I, I showed it to my teacher and I'll never forget the look on her face when she saw this. And it wasn't a look of scolding, a dis, you know, reaction or contempt, but it was a, a look, she looked at me as if to say, is this what you really want to do? Is this really you? And in that moment, I wasn't, I felt acutely aware that I had, um, I was on the verge of betraying something that was central to me simply because my little school chums were adamant that I should peg along with them. And I'll never forget that because that, uh, I, I, it, it, it immediately, it was like, um, you know, kind of like a, a, a rock dropping into a pond and the water breaking and then the, the and then, I discovered, I recovered myself instantly because the water came back and everything was smooth. And I went on drawing my boats and in the landscapes and I forgot the damn <clears throat> battlefields because that wasn't of any interest to me. And so that, that, that pattern of saying, is this of interest to me or not? Do I like this or not? Does this, is this something I wanna pursue or not? Was, was a very, very much woven into my experience all the way up to and, and throughout you know, my early teens. And, and there's another thing that underscored the importance of, uh, of this accumulation. It was stuff that I wanted and it was stuff that I knew that I, I, I the artistic activities, the drawings, the little stories, the, the music performance, all added up to something that I was deeply committed to. And I was, Approaching my 16th birthday was a, you know, the lead up to that for, from 12, 13, 14 and so forth. I started to become aware of things going out in the world. I realized that I was on my way to being drafted to go to Vietnam. And that was an ongoing presence daily reports of that war, daily discussion of it around the dinner table, violent disagreements about it in every household that I was associated with. But I realized that I was about ready to come up to my 16th birthday with 10 years of, of commitment to this thing. And I was going to be drafted and thrown into, a, into some potential life-threatening jungle somewhere and maybe never come back. And I said, this is absolutely insane. How is this even possible? And so 
from the moment I realized that this was utterly wrong and utterly wrong for me and an utter uh, uh, attack on everything that I had built up, I started, I, I started looking around and said, I've got to figure this out. I've got to find some arguments against this. I've got to find some, some moral arguments against the draft. Otherwise, I'm going to die. And, um, you know, with, with that as my next phase of things to do, it was not just, you know, oh, open my eyes, grab, look, accumulate experience, do, 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 do. And then I, then it was, okay, I've done all this stuff. Now I'm going to protect it. Now I've got to figure out what morality is in a way and, and how it relates to me in a way, I think. So that was the whole, that, that began about a two year period of time where I was looking around for some kind of insight into why it was okay for me to say no to other people's requests and absolutely say yes to what I wanted to continue doing without being skinned alive or blown apart. And uh, in high school, I was when one day I was listening to this talk radio show, uh, which I listened to avidly every uh, Saturday in, uh, or Sunday evening. And some person came on air and was talking about another person's plight with the draft or something. And all of a sudden out of nowhere said, well, you know, you might wanna check out this writer who has some moral arguments against the draft. And, and that writer's name is Ayn Rand. And so I, I went, um, that week I went around looking for um, this book that apparently these, uh, these essays against the draft could be found. And that was a book called uh, capitalism, the, the unknown ideal. And I couldn't find it in the bookstores and I ended up finding it in a, a used bookstore. And mm. um, I read that, um, I read the, uh, the pertinent article essay in that book. And I think th that was like a door opening because the, uh, you know, the takeaway from my reading of that was, okay, here's this idea. I didn't call it a theory at the time. I, I would have said, here's this idea, you know, from my 16 or 17 year old perspective that justifies um, my saying no to the draft. And so the, the first, the next thing I, I, I thought of after I established that was, okay, if it's a moral, now I'm using that word morality or using a moral term. If it's a moral to draft an individual Maybe it's immoral to draft an entire economy, a whole group of people. And that's what began, uh, that's what that, that moment cemented in my head, at least, an interest in exploring the wider implications of this decision to preserve my own solitary singular life. And I, I thought, well, maybe, the, maybe there's some, um, something that relates to uh, the wider issue of not just my life, but uh, lives, many multiple lives living in the same area in the same 
same place. And that was politics. And it's so interesting the way that, um, I mean, really your interest in philosophy came out of your interest in art and more broadly, just your interest in your, your values. I was just struck by you were talking about how you were so focused on just what are the things that I find interesting. And as you know, I mean, that, that Ayn Rand name, that is like her characteristic mindset of her, her younger years is just on the lookout for things that are interesting to me. And then, of course, her interest in philosophy came out of her interest mm-hmm. in her life and projecting her values. Um, well, I mean, there's so much I want to cover. So I, how do you end up then from a person growing up in Berkeley to now you're running the Ayn Rand Institute archives? Because it did not sound to me in anything that you've described so far that you are in the trajectory to be an archivist. Well, um, that, I mean, that, uh, how do I put that? I I mean, there's a couple of uh, steps prior to that. Um, uh, Acquiring that job and acquiring that opportunity. One of the things that was uh, a consequence of my reading at the time was, does this stuff hold any water? Do I have can I present these ideas to other people and effectively, you know, defend my, you know, objections to the draft, but do I know enough about the surrounding issues? And that, uh, you know, I was an avid reader and I, uh, when I started planning my, you know, school journey after high school, um, my path, I decided, well, I'm going to, I've had all this training in the arts. I wanna have a broader education than just going to music school. So I decided that I would take the, what I called the meat and potatoes of the music program at, at UC Berkeley and become a philosophy student because then I would have this like unique experience of being able to put myself in a, the mode of examining you know, really rude issues in um, Western culture, Western history, and I would still be very much plugged in to practical art making and to actual execution. And it would be this combination of of theory and practice, which was, you know, becoming clearer to me, that became very clear to me, it was an important union. And I thought, well, if I'm going to defend these views, what would be the most radically difficult challenging place to be defending them in. And I thought, well, that's UC Berkeley. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I started there. Um, and prior to starting there, I actually, um, uh, there's one other thing that's really pertinent to this, you know, line that goes to the, you know, my employment situation later, my, my current job. I was, uh, for a, uh, a summer, a couple of summers, I worked in kind of light agriculture and I was, I was uh, working in this nursery and I was standing in the, the sun every day for about eight hours, uh, you know, in a barnyard, actually repotting orchids because, I, you know, that was the nursery is an orchid nursery. And um, I was really exhausted at the end of the days, but I, I wanted to read 
you know, more about Ayn Rand. And so at that time I had sent off this, uh, this insert that was in one of the books and it came back with, um, because I wanted to, you know, I saw there's this newsletter, this thing called the Ayn Rand letter. I'm going to, you know, explore that. And this thing came back and says, I'm sorry, there's no, all these publications are unavailable. You've, everything's closed down. There's nothing uh, oh available. And so I said, oh man, this is like crazy. So um, I had previously worked on the semantics project in high school where I, I read like 50 years of Dick Tracy trying to uh, solve a problem related to uh, the communication of ideas in popular you know, uh, literature like comics. I, I tried to see, my, my, my goal in that project was to read this history, but I had to do it at the state library. And so I just, I said, well, I wonder if the state library has any of these um, publications. So I went and checked out the Ayn Rand letter for three months for this summer while I was standing in the sun, eight hours a day. I'd come home and I'd sit in the bathtub, or lie in it at the end of the of the day and I would read one letter after the other and there were these three volumes I said wow there's I'm the only person in in Northern California that has the <laughs> letter in my hand I better not get it wet because I <laughs> right you know, but I did and I managed not to so it was that summer that I just went over and over this this material I, I, I found it absolutely fascinating but it was quite clear that everything was that had come and gone. The publication was no longer publishing. There was, you know, there was no activity. I didn't know anyone connected with this. And uh, I, I just felt like there had to be some other people that were interested in this and where would I go and find them? So in one of the Ayn Rand letters in the calendar, there was some mention of, uh, uh, the calendar as a small publication that you could subscribe to and get more information. So I ended up subscribing to that. And one thing led to another, there was a, um, I'm uh, a, through that calendar, which uh, in, introduced me to certain community groups and whatnot. I, I began to you know meet people who were uh, out and about. And it was through that, that I decided, well, Ayn Rand, is speaking at this place called the Ford Hall Forum. I think I'm gonna go and hear her. So I ended up taking a train trip uh, from California to Boston to, and the goal was to explore music schools around the country and also to see her speak, um, in, at, and, which I did. And then I came back um, having met one of her friends, This philosopher by the name of Alan Gotthelf, who decided, who, who offered to uh, give, you know, help me with my, um, uh, you know, reading when I went to university. And so I, and he said, oh yeah, and there's someone at Berkeley who's kind of interested in Ayn Rand and, you know, maybe you can communicate with him. And, and so I ended up, you know, <clears throat> doing my time at university at Berkeley in the philosophy library, you know, it's um, looking down the length of the uh, library. It was a dedicated philosophy library, a very nice kind of 19th century layout with 
um, a window overlooking Strawberry Creek, which was a stream that went through the campus. And to the right of the window on one of the bookshelves was this index called the Philosopher's Index, which this philosopher, Alan Gotthelf, told me he had prepared summaries for summaries of Ayn Rand's articles. So I, I for, for like the next three years when I was at university, I'd go in and do my you know, papers on Descartes, Kant, Aristotle, Plato, Spinoza, and, and so forth. And always at the end of the, uh, the philosophy library would be this set of Ayn Rand summaries. And a once in a while there'd be, an, uh, you know, on the, the rack of magazine journal articles, there'd be, or, or magazines with journal articles, there would be one rare article that would mention her. And so I, I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is really, wouldn't it be great? You know, I was in my mind, if I was a student and I could just have a lot more stuff available in the library about her. And right. wouldn't it really be interesting to not only collect the stuff about her, but to, and this was my big interest, to read how she got to the point of publishing the stuff that she did that would be now on the shelves. So I, I remember reading in some of her novels and the introductions to certain of her books, uh, introductions that had quotations from unpublished work. And I remember in particular, there's a, a quote from this unpublished play called Ideal. And a quote of uh, between, uh, an exchange between the character Kay Gonda and Johnny Dawes. And I was, I was utterly mesmerized by that. That I said, that is the future right there. That whatever, wherever that leads is where I want to go in terms of, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, following philosophy and, and following the implications of my interests at Berkeley. So I, um, I was actually, um, as I graduated from Berkeley, I was in the very first university course at Berkeley given in objectivism. It was sponsored by my professor, uh, uh, my Spinoza and pre-Socratic professor Wallace Matson, And he sponsored uh, Harry Binswanger to come out to teach at Berkeley. And that is a whole story unto itself, but I could only, that would take a whole hour just to go into that. But I will say this, that the reason Ayn Rand got on campus that year and was able to, uh, and Wally Matson was able to proceed with this uh, presentation, which sponsored Harry coming in and Binswanger coming in and doing it was because of a special ruling that had previously some years before enabled Eldridge Cleaver to participate in a class as an adjunct to a professor who was on campus at the time to present Eldridge Cleaver's views. So the Black Panthers paved the way for Ayn Rand to appear at UC Berkeley. And that was the, uh, the genesis of that class. Now in that, in that class, there were a number of people who I would later, decades later, get to know. As was the case when I went to see Ayn Rand in, uh, in Boston, I stood in line for 10 hours and 
I didn't know anyone. I was just taking it all in. But I remember there were people that I later got to know very well in that uh, line and very well who were in that audience. Um, and so I left university. I, I had this really incredibly um, renewed, uh, you know, financially uh, profoundly uh, money producing degree in philosophy. And I left it with, with the university though, with one objective, I need to come out of it with some kind of skill that I can use to, you know, pole vault my way into my, you know, career in, in the arts and in, in ideas. And I had been a custodian at, at Berkeley. I was the highest paying job at the, on campus at the time. And I, and I got a job in the food service and I was, uh, one thing went, led to another and I got a job at the UC Berkeley faculty club and I deliberately selected getting, going into the kitchen and going into learning how to cook because I'd always have something to eat. And number two, I said, if all of all the things I can choose right now as a day job, I want to do something that is geared to human pleasure. That's I interesting. I want to, I deliberately chose that because it was, it was a way to participate in the very best aspects of human life, the celebrations and rituals that were, I think, very important. And uh, so I, I basically um, learned a skill. I learned a, a trade. I was there for four years and, you know, partly during my time at, at university and partly after. And then when it, when it was time for me to move on, I, I was able to move out of the Bay Area down to Los Angeles to work, you know, to get involved in, you know, pursuing my art interests in film and theater and so forth. I mean, that's a whole nother story. But I remember showing up in Los Angeles and thinking, okay, I've got to now figure out people to see, things to do. And um, one of the last things I received before I moved down to LA from the, uh, I was living in San Francisco at the time, was this notification that this thing called the Ayn Rand Institute was opening up. And I received a newsletter. And in that newsletter, there was this tiny little article next below all of the trumpet blasting celebration of the board of directors and the initiatives and so forth. There's this little blurb that said, um, if you're interested in volunteering, please call Donna Montreza, who was the office manager at the time. So, um, I, you know, I was here, I was in the, the uh, middle of, you know, my foray into Hollywood and I had friends who were down here. And so I was going to Paramount Studios and whatnot and having lunch and kind of getting, getting my, uh, getting acclimated. And I remember calling up the office, the Institute saying, oh, uh, I'm interested in coming by and seeing what's going on and, and possibly volunteering. He says, sure, that's fine. Why don't you... Um, uh, to, where are you coming from? And I said, oh, I'm coming from Paramount. And she thought I was talking about Paramount, the town in like north of Long Beach instead of Paramount Studios. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, no, I said Paramount Studios. I, I'll, I'm really close by. Of course I wasn't. I had no idea of this space <clears throat> dimensions of LA. So I end up 
going to this. Was it in Marina Del Rey from the first? Yeah, it was in Marina Del Rey. I show up. Here's Donna. I go upstairs. It's a tiny little office. And here are all these people, you know, like two or three people. And I, I said, well, I'm here. Let's, what can <laughs> I do? So I ended up being the first volunteer. And at the time, there was a mailroom shelf, not a mailroom. And one thing led to another. I guess they liked me. So they said, well, about a month later, I got a call from Donna. I said, would you like a job? And I said, yeah, I, 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 I'd be I'd be down for that. And so I ended up working there for about um, eight or so months. And the rest is, uh, as they say, history. Well, I do want to ask you one more thing that I, I know you and I want to have a much longer conversation about, but the challenge of bouncing so many creative interests Mm. and bouncing is probably not even the right word, but it's the challenge of uh, honoring them maybe is a better way to think about it. How do you currently deal with that? Because I know a lot of people who, um, if I'm going to be a little bit uh, mean to them, I'll say that you know they're fooling themselves uh, mm-hmm. and making excuses. But who say like, look, I would love to, you know, I want to write a novel or I want to what you know fill in the blank. I just don't have the time and. I know I don't have the time to do what I do and I'm, I know you don't, but how, how do you try to build all these things into your life? Do you have time to get up in the morning? <laughs> do you have time to take a, uh, to eat your breakfast? Do you have time to, uh, op- you know, turn on the, the computer, type an email, take a deep breath, turn on the radio, or whatever your music format is. Uh, I mean, there's nothing in those few acts there that is not a, a degree of separation from an activity that yields art. You know, that's how I look at it. I mean, it's it's like, okay, here's music, here's literature, here's the visuals, you know, it's all connected. It's just what you do with that. It's, it's how much recognition you give to the stuff that is essential part of the toolkit of being an artist, which is you. you. You carry you with every step you take. And if you want to develop that, then you have to, and you want to squeeze a lot in, in a very uh, busy day, you, you have to understand, you have to embrace what you are. And you have to know the implications of that. And you, you have to be, um, excited about drawing the implications, literally drawing, or whistling the implications, or telling a tall tale that expresses those implications. It's all a part of you. And if you don't compartmentalize yourself and detach these, um, all this fund of experience that I mentioned earlier on that was a part of my early life, if you don't detach that from your life as an adult, then you have access to all these rich things. And it's just a matter of you deciding where you're gonna go. Are you gonna go to the right? Are you gonna go to the left? Are you gonna look up or are you gonna look down? And that means, are you going to spend time working on learning how to write? Are you gonna learn and express yourself as a, a visual person? 
or are you going to explore music or because these are things that can combine in a composite way and if you have the temperament for it are you going to hyphenate yourself and do all three and as long as you know that you're the that the substance that you're working from happens to be also you that does a hell of a lot of other things during the day it it becomes less daunting i think and more tangible what you can do to actually make this all hang together well jeff thank you um where can people find out more about what you're up to oh you could just drop my name into google that right now that's my um <laughs> that's probably the, the best way to, to uh, find out about the range of things that I'm doing. You know, I have an Instagram page, Jeff Britting. I have a Facebook page, Jeff Britting. I usually spend a certain amount of my, um, uh, or post uh, something in, you know, relevant to my range of interests. So you can start with those. Well, awesome. Thanks again, Jeff.